If you want peace, prepare for war. This is Parabellum, a Cyberbit podcast. All right, welcome to the Parabellum podcast, where uh, we're going to talk mostly about cybersecurity, but because we're joined by a couple guests today, John Denunzio from Cyberbit, as well as Teddy Guzik from 1150 Academy. Teddy is dialed in from Chicago today, so I think nothing's more appropriate to kick off somebody from Chicago with how much you like Malort. That is a great question. Or what? why do people in Chicago actually put up with that like it's a rite of passage? Uh, since it's here and they, they kind of they live up to it and they act like they love it. But yeah, no, I, I never really got along with Malort. Okay, Teddy, so being the uh, kind of guest of honor, give me a little bit of your background before we get into any conversation about 1150. What do you do for a living, man? Yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, so I'm Teddy Guzik. I... I Graduated from college and moved up to Chicago. Um, started a small consult or started to work for a, a mid-sized consulting firm up here, um, and worked in their penetration testing lab here, kind of in char- doing all sorts of uh, technical security assessments, primarily network and application penetration testing, um, but other stuff kind of sprinkled in there as well. And then. I've uh, done that for the last five years or so, and then about six months ago, um, the people from 1150 Academy reached out to me um, about, they had heard that I was trying to move back to Indianapolis. I grew up in Indianapolis, um, and they heard I was trying to move back to Indianapolis and um, asked me if I'd help them spin up the cybersecurity program there and, you know, kind of go about, you know, what does it take? What is it that the workforce is looking for? And then in addition, I... And the uh, founder and principal consultant for a small consulting firm um, called Hoplite Consulting. Um, and we do same kind of thing, all sorts of technical security assessments, security strategy, uh, that kind of stuff. And we work with a, uh, a small group of, uh, of smaller consultants in the Indianapolis area that the whole idea is you're not going to get that lower level um, quality of work that you would from um, maybe larger consulting firms where they push work down to analysts. Um, you have people that have made it through, pushed their way up through um, larger consulting firms and then have gone off and do their own thing. And now they're um, actually doing the work themselves rather than pushing that work down. So we pride ourselves on a, a high level of work um, and, and really creating value for our clients. So that's kind of where I'm at now. Um, my current role at 1150 Academy now is cybersecurity advisor. Um, so I am in charge of you know, really helping them with the macro trends in cyber. So what is it that we're trying to train our, our students for um, in the future? Uh, what is, what are the, what's going to be the next thing in cyber? What's the next job? The first cohort we got done with, we really concentrated on training stock analysts. And even then, like, you know, we're starting to transition into to other uh, roles as well in cybersecurity. So uh, my job is, again, push, finding out the trends and what are the future jobs in cybersecurity, and then also connecting with employers and trying to get some of these students jobs. Really, the reason they come there is to, to change their life from whatever it may be, whatever their, their previous experience was. They came to this boot camp at 1150 Academy to change their life. And... Um, get into a higher paying job, a more fulfilling job maybe, and really kind of roll from there. So so that's kind of where I'm at now. 
I am coming at you from Chicago right now as I'm uh, just up here visiting, but uh, primarily my hometown is is Indianapolis. So Teddy, before we before we go into what what you're producing out of the academy, you brought up uh, your experience in penetration testing. Uh, there's going to be some people that have get, that are well versed in all manner of cybersecurity that listen to this, but there'll be some people that are relatively new. Can you kind of unpack what is, what's a day in the life of somebody that's doing pen testing? Yeah, yeah. So, so penetration testing is, you know, I think of it as ethical hacking is the way that I describe it to people. You know, as it comes up in conversation with uh, with new people that you meet, I usually just describe it as ethical hacking. So a company pays me to to try to hack into their environment, however it may be. There's different kinds of a penetration test, the scope changes uh, depending on the maturity level of that client and their security posture. But basically the goal is to try to hack into their environment and explain to them how I did that and then work with them to try to fix it so it doesn't happen in real life. So with that, what kind of companies are more likely to um, employ your services? Who looks for penetration testing? Is it kind of across the board or... What's the, what's the DNA of an organization that's that proactive to say, you know what, I want to find my gaps, I want to find my holes, and I need to have an independent third party come in and, and show me where I've got, got uh, some blind spots? Yeah, so that, that's, a, that's a really good question. The answer is, or at least my answer is, I think everyone should get this type of work done. Maybe not necessarily penetration tests, but you know, a level of, of assessment of your security level in your organization. So primarily, um, I work with larger companies that are willing to to pay for these kinds of services. I like that too. Yeah. So, but usually, you know, it could range. You know, from I've done I've done thirty person companies um, to all the way, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And those scopes change the level of effort that you're doing, but it doesn't really change the nature of your work. So they vary by industry a little bit, but for the most part, what you're doing and what you're looking at, the kind of systems that you're attacking are all pretty consistent across the board, right? You're looking at your Windows machines and your Linux machines and your Mac OS X, and then, you know, obviously the different versions of those, but you're still looking at the same thing. And most networks are, are connected the same way as well. So Teddy, it's John. Are you uh, just trying to break through the firewall and get to the machine, or are you actually trying to uh, get some PII or some sort of other uh, confidential data? So, so it, it, it again that ver- so it varies on the scope of the project. Some people just want you. Some companies just want you to try to get in, see, you know, hey, I was able to get in, just report back, let us know. And some want us to really kind of go at it, um, see what we can find, see if we can get credit card data right. So PCI and other sorts of regulations require you to to do work like this. Finding credit card data, finding medical record numbers, and for companies that for healthcare, the healthcare industry. Yeah, but, yeah. Is it typically you find just because of poor cyber hygiene? Is that how you're able to get in, or is it other things as well? Yeah, uh, I mean, for the most part, one of the things that I my big, I guess my message is that um, it's very easy to try to get to, to blame cybersecurity for thing or lack of cybersecurity or like the. It's hard to conceptualize what is cybersecurity, right? Or, or what is a hacker and what they're doing. And people put them on pedestals to say, like, you know, what they're doing is impossible. It's these crazy things flying to the air. You see the images that are put on, on movies and on TV shows of people coding super fast and, and all that. And it's that's not really what it is. So people naturally think that, that it's impossible 
to stop that type of thing. And to go back to your question, is it just poor cyber hygiene? Yes, that's what it really comes down to. It is, the attacks are constantly changing um, and there's always new, new vulnerabilities that are coming out. But for the most part, the principles stay the same on securing your, your environment. And a lot of times it just comes down to something being overlooked or something that a company can't uh, patch or fix or reconfigure because it would affect critical business functions. So they accept that risk. That's 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 interesting. So that's an interesting point you just brought up there with respect to not patching. So you're saying, and because we often say it's about people, process, and technology, but you're saying there's cases where they know there's a CVE or a vulnerability and they're not patching it because they can't, or they can't upgrade because there's a constraint from one of their vendors, be it Microsoft or whomever. Is that your point? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I'm saying. Uh, maybe it's more the AS400. That's exactly what it is. It's always the AS400. Our flight data is still on the AS400. So, you know, a couple of days ago, uh, you and I had a pretty interesting conversation that I'd like to maybe bring the listeners in to discuss. And that's, uh, admittedly, I am I'm more of a telecommunications guy in my background and recently transitioned into the cybersecurity world. In part because there's a lot of empty jobs, and we'll get to that, but... I thought it was just because you're good-looking. Um, well, that's why we're on radio. I have <laughs> I have a face made for radio and a voice made for print. However, so, Teddy, we were talking about the role of the CISO, and the CISO, as a individual within an organization, can mean a lot of different things. I mean, we're saying it's the chief information security officer, right? But we see CISOs all the time now that are... When you look at what they're actually tasked to do or what level of responsibility and budgetary responsibility they have in a company might not be what you expect out of a C-level. And then again, in other organizations, it's a it's somebody that's got a seat at the table at a board meeting, right? Yes. That's that's <laughs> one of the things that I've taken a, a real interest to in my, my time in the in the industry is, is the difference in what is a CISO. Um, you'll find CISOs that are very young late 20s, early 30s, and then you find CISOs that are, you know, older, you know, 60, 65. And it's interesting to figure out their backgrounds and what their actual responsibilities are. So you have people that are they're younger, right? The, the CISOs that are maybe 30, I mean, really just cybersecurity professionals, but you have cybersecurity professionals that are younger that grew up with the technology. I'm always interested in how they got to that point. And then you have cybersecurity professionals that are older and they got into cybersecurity maybe when they were, you know, 40 or 35 or, or whatever. And I always like to say, you know, my job was not even, old. That is not old. Well, you know what I mean? <laughs> Older. My job wasn't a thing 15 years ago. So it's interesting to see, you know, how these, these principles are evolving around cybersecurity and how, I guess, just the landscape and the people that are in, in the industry. But my big thing is, is that you see CISOs that really have no influence at all in the company. And then you have CISOs that are, like you said before, they're actually on the board. They're a true C-suite employee. And it's always interesting to see who the CISO reports to, because then usually in a meeting when you, you talk to a CISO and you know, and you find out who they report to or kind of their chain of command, uh, you can find out how, how mature their security posture is as an organization. Would you say that uh, if they were on the board, for example, as opposed to working for a uh, CIO, is that by itself a direct reflection of the maturity or the 
level of intent the firm takes from a cybersecurity perspective? Oh yeah, yeah. If their if if their CISO has the responsibilities, they've got the seat at the table. There's it's clear that they're making an effort to to really put an emphasis on security in the organization, and so there's a a much better chance that an individual like that is going to have a much, I guess, larger influence on on his uh, employees below him, the people that he is he's leading to try to protect this organization. So yeah, definitely. And also when it comes to budget constraints too, which is the usual thing that comes up when you're talking cybersecurity, right? Is is you know how much money does or does an organization have to fix these problems or to prevent these problems? And they it may, they may not even be reporting to the CIO, right? Or uh, a CTO. They may be reporting in through legal. Yep. Heard examples of that. Yeah, I, I see. Um, uh, a lot of CISOs that, uh, that report through legal, through their, their legal officer or their general counselor. Compliance is another one. Um, you have uh, the CFO um, is another one that they'll report up through. So I, I've seen kind of, I've seen most of them. And I don't know if I'm, I want to say my, I, I really want to see more security be more of an emphasis in an organization like that rather than just money. Yeah, that makes sense for protecting a lot and really holding the bag when things go wrong. So let's go ahead and transition. Do you have a question, John? Yeah, I was just curious if you found large caps in Chicago versus smaller companies in your experience, if there's a more of a emphasis on security based on the size of the company. I, I imagine there would be. I would say yes and no. Um, I've seen some small organizations that are being like, you know, built up from the ground up with an emphasis on security. Um, we've, I've spoken with um, a few companies that they are now building their products, you know, you know, less than 10 years old, 10 year old companies that are building their products with the idea of security in mind. And those are the smaller ones that you'll see that actually, you know, they put more of an emphasis on security. But when you have the smaller companies that are reacting to this, this whole wave of, you know, cyber and cyber attacks and um, those are the ones that won't necessarily have much of an emphasis or security won't have much of an influence on them. Um, but then it goes the same thing with large companies as well. Large companies that have a lot to lose still don't put a lot of emphasis on security as well. It just depends. So let's um, segue over to the 1150 and the training stuff you're doing over there. And, it, you know, it used to say that it, I did some work for a company a few years ago that the head of PR said, you know, my goal in life is to keep us off the 10 o'clock news in the first segment because that's where they report all the bad stuff. So I would imagine a, maybe a good 2019, 2020 analogy for that would be, how do I hire the right people that are well-trained to keep me off of a Google feed for some kind of cyber incident? Google alert, maybe. What are, you, what are you guys doing at 1150? What's what's unique about the uh, program you've built up over there? When 1150 came to me and asked me about um, starting up this program and, and if I'd help, I, I I was a little bit unaware of the the gap in cybersecurity talent that there was throughout the world. They started you know showing me these sites. It's, it, it's apparent when you're working in the industry, but you don't really think of it like that from a macro level. You just think, okay, yeah, this company just maybe doesn't have the most talented security responders or, or um, team that's, that's dealing with their security. But then you also realize the number of jobs that are open in, in the industry. 33% of the existing cybersecurity jobs right now in the U.S. are unfilled. There's yeah. a, definitely a cost of vacancy there. Exactly, yeah. 
a college degree is not necessary for a job in cybersecurity. And you're seeing more and more companies kind of come up with this. This They're kind of riding the wave, right, of, that Apple and Google kind of started. I saw um, EY and a couple other big four companies that are now saying they don't require degrees for someone to get a job there. And while I, I wouldn't take back a minute of my college degree, I thought I learned a lot and it was great for me. Some individuals, that's not the proper learning um, arena for them. So what we're creating at 1150 is a proper arena for um, individuals that don't want to spend four years uh, learning how to do, you know, writing 10 page papers about a subject that they don't care about at all. They want to learn how to, how, how can I protect the company and how can I get out there and get a job? And there really isn't a ton of options for that right now. So um, what we're doing at 1150 is trying to develop entry-level positions for people that are switching over from another industry or from uh, people that just graduated from high school. Um, our first cohort, we had a, a pretty cool breakdown where we had three students that just graduated from high school um, that came in. They, they knew that they were ready to start working. Um, they knew that they didn't want to take on the loans. They knew that the, the college the college space wasn't for them. And then we also had, you know, we had people coming from the armed forces, which I know we're, we want to get into. Um, and then we also had, uh, we had a, a 65 year old man that just shut down his, um, his own company at his own civil engineering company for a long time and shut it down to finish his career out in cybersecurity because he saw so much promise in it and so much uh, stability. Wait, wait, you said 65 year old business owners said, you know what, I, I'm done with, I'm done with civil engineering and I want to go and, and get in the trenches on cybersecurity. Yeah. How cool that's, is that? That's fascinating. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. And so with this, the, the widest diversity we had in this first class, first of all, it was phenomenal for, for me as an instructor, I learned a ton from them, but it's also, it's promising to see that you can, you can bring people from all walks of life and you can teach them these in a lot of cases, new terms and new um, ideas in, in tech for, for individuals that are older versus ones that are younger. And they can all kind of come together and still come to the same solution. Now they're, they're learning, the way they learn and their learning um, techniques are much different. I, I've learned that just based on your different decades of life or, or different generations, people, people learn much differently. We have, we were trying to do, um, ebooks and stuff and some of the older individuals didn't take well to that right they like to see it in their hands they like to, <laughs> to write on the sheet of paper whereas um i didn't actually i didn't get to this privilege but even a couple years younger me everyone grew up with ipads in school it, those people it, it worked really well for them so we're 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 working to kind of change the way and, and try to be as adaptive as possible for the different audience we have in our class but a little, so I guess a little bit about the class though, and I, 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 you're probably gonna get into this, but um, I, I've talked about like the different ways of learning and I know Cyberbit, a lot of people listening to this probably understand what that is, right? So. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe not, but uh, yeah, I mean, you're sure, certainly gonna have a theory and more of a traditional textbook or ebook type of learning. And I would imagine that you have some level of hands-on, which would point to CyberBit, but I, you know what, you're, you're the one putting the program together. I'm, I'm interested in, in unpacking what you're doing there in the classrooms at 1150. You've got a 12 week program. You're taking people from all walks of life and young and old and in between male, female, doesn't matter, matter who they are, what they are. They've got to have, um, 
a reason and a passion to get into cybersecurity, and you've got a you got a place for them to land. So, walk us through that twelve week. It sounds almost like a boot camp. Yes, yeah, yeah. So that's exactly what it is. We 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 call it a boot camp. Uh, with the the Cyberbit range is what we purchased um, to be our our tool of choice to to train our individuals. You can't just drop someone of those, nothing about cybersecurity, nothing about networking, you know, hardly anything about computers, right, into that range. It's a, it's a very complex environment and it's, there's a lot of stuff going on. So after we received that range and we kind of did some uh, messing around with it, kind of figuring out what it is, we determined that the best way for us to teach our, our students to get ready for this thing would be to teach them the, the CompTIA Network Plus and the CompTIA Security Plus certifications. So the class starts off with um, this, the students doing pre-work of the A-plus certification, which is another CompTIA cert. It just it basically revolves around hardware and software. And they're just uh, getting the very... I got that in the 90s. Yeah, yeah right? So the, the very basics of, of computers. And then they come in the first day. We, we kind of test them a little bit about what they learned. And the whole idea of them having that pre-work is that some people may... You know, have a lot, have a lot of knowledge right now. I'm, I'm putting my hands up at different levels, and obviously, you can't see that. So that's pre, that's pre work, right? They show up with the cert already for the CompTIA courses. So not the cert necessarily. We don't require them to get the cert, but the whole idea is that they've performed all of the the training and the tasks and the readings for that. So that way, we know everyone's at least at this point, rather than you build it, you build a base. Exactly. Right. So we'll build a base there with with the A plus. So then, second day of class, we start off with Network Plus. We do that for about two or three weeks, uh, depending on you know how quickly the class is, is picking up on it. And as as courses are changing, we're getting better and better materials um, so that we can bring people through the course quicker. But we teach them network, network plus is routing and switching and exactly IP so, addressing, IPv4, IPv6, getting through the basics of that. How how deep do you get into the routing? Are you touching on OSPF, BGP, MPLS, any of that stuff, or is it just staying? Yeah, so so we do. Yeah, we, we get into that. Um, it is so Network Plus does. I think it's fourteen. At least we broke it up into fourteen different chapters. And yeah, we we, we basically you teach the OSI model from um, top to bottom. So from I guess, well, I guess depending on how you're looking at it, but we're looking at, at layer one and we work our way to layer seven um, and just basically how mm -hmm. networking, how it fits into networking, how each, each layer fits into networking. From there, they take their network plus exams. Some pass, some don't. And it's, you know, these certifications are, are difficult certs to pass. So we don't necessarily expect everyone to pass that, that, um, that certification their first time. I know certifications are meant to be failed, but we have a, a pretty high pass rate for, um, everyone passing on their first time, and then, um, and even once, once they do their second one, I think, I want to say our numbers for our first cohort were we had 71% of people pass their first time taking it, and then we had 67% of the people that didn't pass pass the second time they took it. And how did our 65-year-old gentleman do? He came in the other day and he passed his Security Plus, and I was I haven't been so like overjoyed in a while. He sent me a, a long email. We have we have a Pearson View testing site in our in our place, so one of the uh, the assistant structures was there um, performing it. But he wrote a long email after and was very excited about it. I I, I was I was overjoyed that he passed. Um, he was one that I was, you know, wanted to make into a, he, he, I wanted to make sure 
that if we could get someone that came from a background like that to, to pass, then I, I knew we could kind of get anyone there. So, um, yeah. but yeah, so the, he, he just passed the security plus. So what, that was awesome, which that leads me to the security plus certification. So after the network plus, they get into security plus and um, that's basically you, you learn how the network works, right? And now you're learning how you're securing that network, how you're securing your, your networks, your individual workstations, your servers. And we walk them through that. And then once they get done, we get done with all those modules, they take their test. And then, um, then we move on to the cyberbit range, which is really, I guess I would call it the, the shining star of the program. That's what everyone looks forward to. Obviously the certifications aren't fun to do, but they're, you know, they're necessary for someone to be able to get to that point. Sure they are. All right. So, so I want to hear from both of you, Teddy first, and then John about the range. So Teddy, you've got the hands-on practitioner experience with it. The class is really fired up to get on the range and range can mean a lot of different things to a lot of people from, you know, some of it's still theory-based or tabletops and maybe um, some gamification. What's your experience with that range? Um, yeah, so... And the students, especially so the students. So I also want to uh, mention that when they first came to me and told me that we want to build this cyber range, I had never heard of a cyber range before. And... I was I, I was picturing in my head I was picturing you know a, a, a driving range for golf or a shooting range or so I was picturing a lot of moving parts and a lot of stuff going on and I'm thinking I kept hearing hearing it being associated with military life and so I was thinking you're gonna have people in, in boots right jumping over walls and, and running around and obviously not the case but what would immediately jump to my head um, so I was from the start I was very intrigued as to what 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 this tool was so basically it is a and and I'm sure. Uh, you guys do a better job of explaining it to me um, or explaining it to the crowd. But basically, it's a it's a mock environment and it could be, you know, any kind of environment. But we in class, we have the students basically they're in a team and we have them make up their own company name, their industry, what they're doing. And, and like each person has their own role in that range. And the idea is that you have cyber attacks coming from the trainer station, which is where the instructors were myself and and the other instructors would, would send attacks out and the class or the, uh, the SOC or the blue team those that we were training uh, would respond to that attack, um, perform their forensics on it and determine how um, it happened. So we, our specific range has 14 different scenarios that we train the students on. Like what? So an example of one would be, there's a WMI worm which uh, is, is very fun to watch the students react to as it's making its way through the environment. Um, the other big one, there's a web defacement that's always fun to see. That one's usually one of the first ones we give them to kind of give them some sort of visual um, idea uh, because, you know, they're coming into this program still thinking they're going to see numbers, I guess ones and zeros flying through the air, right? Yeah. We like to show them that one. And then I'd say the big hit and one of the most impressive ones on there, and I guess the most in interactive and gives a little bit of gamification too is the, the ransomware one, which is a, a very cool scenario. Hard one too. Yeah. How long does it take to actually go through the ransomware scenario? I want to say that one is a four hour long scenario that if you want to be as, you know, if you really want to dig into it deep and, and, and figure out everything that, that, that ransomware is doing and all the computers that it's infected, it takes a little bit longer than that. Sometimes we have to cut them short and, um, 
or push them through it a little bit and show them where they're going uh, because it is a very robust uh, attack. It can be longer if you were to delete the logs and have a fast attack and have no alarms and you have to go to the CNC server to get their crypto keys and it could take longer oh, yeah. than four hours, oh, yeah. a lot longer. So to kind of pause Teddy for a minute, uh, so Teddy explained his experience with the range to, to this point yeah. um, and we'll get back into the students and how they're learning. But uh, from your perspective, what would you say about about the range and what differentiates it? Well, I think you know, Teddy did a terrific job of uh, explaining it. And I, th I think it's really important to understand that you have to have a certain set of records with skills before you show up. Um, it, uh, it's sort of like a lab when you have a class. So you have the classroom mm -hmm. and you have the practical environment. And that can be whether you look at it from a uh, a school or a, or a university setting or even a military setting where you have a certain amount of knowledge and then you go to pre-brief what we're going to accomplish today in our mission set. You go off into the uh, threat environment, you execute the mission, and then you go back in later and you debrief, right? Because you'll learn more from what you didn't do right from what you did do right. But uh, the explanation about why you need to understand the OSI stack and understand uh, the network is really important because this is not a gamification platform. It's not Xbox. It is a hyper-realistic, hyper-immersive enterprise-class network with real tools, and you're basically in a highly immersed simulation environment doing the same type of things you do with your, you know, on your job as a SOC analyst. Uh, would, you, would you agree with that, Teddy? Yeah, yeah, I, that's, that's exactly how I would describe it. You're just a little bit better with words than me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so it's virtualized. It's a virtualized environment, and you said you're using the same kind of tools. What kind of tools did you... Uh, put into that virtualized environment, Teddy? Firewalls, did you put them in by uh, function or by an actual brand? Do the students log into firewalls or see real Windows machines, real server logs? Yeah, yeah. so everything is, is what you would see in, in a corporate environment. Our specific range has um, Palo Alto firewalls, both a DMZ and an internal. Um, we have uh, IBM's Q-Radar in there. Uh, we have the Xenos monitoring system in there. We use another big recommendation that, that some clients had as, was to, to implement some open source tools um, as a big gap in the, the industry is the small, medium-sized business who doesn't have, you know, they don't have the budget to, to buy an expensive tool from IBM or from, you know, another security provider. So they, that's where we came in with Snort. I can't afford T-shirts, <laughs> man. I, I hear you. So, so th those are those are some of the tools that we're using. Um, and then, like with in the range, we have you know, there's a there's your Windows servers, there's your workstations. You have um, Ubuntu uh, workstations as well. You have other sorts of Linux servers. Uh, there's a, a whole host of uh, web servers, and the idea is that you know it's as realistic to a real environment as possible. So they get they get real experience logging into, that's the big, that was actually where I would say a, a very large gap was in our class was getting down, getting, understanding Linux, right? Getting down Linux commands. Uh, it's something that some people that have, that, you know, worked in the industry, it's comes second nature to us, but you don't realize that, you know, that stuff that you learned a long time ago is, you know, it's very foreign. It's extremely, you know, that's what I'm looking for. It's. <laughs> 
it's it's scary, I guess is how I'd put it. Um, so they get they get experience working with the tools on Windows to detect attacks, and then also um, experience using Linux to try to traverse through a, a Linux environment and determine what actually was going on. So it's kind of across the board there as far as capabilities. Cool. So so at the end of twelve weeks, I've been in the eleven fifty cybersecurity program. I graduate with real hands-on training on real network elements in a virtualized environment. I've gone through the fatigue of going through cyber events and attacks. I've, I've lived through that experience and I'm ready for, whether I'm 19 years old or 65 years old or anywhere in between, I'm, I'm ready for a, uh, a white collar shovel ready job. Exactly. Yep. Man, that's, that's really important, especially, you know, how connected, everybody talks about how connected we are, but the, the emerging technologies all around just continue to expand the threat surface for all businesses, not just businesses, people, people, businesses, governments, you see nation state actors. And, you know, I think a lot of people still that aren't in the business imagine that the hacker is really a 14 year old pimply faced kid that is just screwing around at home and starting war games. But, you know, aside from that, I, I do want to make a shift because something that's near and dear to me and and I would imagine John as well. John's a former Air Force pilot and he's got a lot of um, experience in simulators as a as a pilot and as an instructor. And actually, before I go on, John, you've got that experience in another world. Tell me how important simulation is. Oh, to give an analogy to things you might see in a different life, it's incredibly important. I, uh, I tell a story oftentimes that uh, the first time I saw a firelight in an airplane, in a no-kidding real airplane. What's a firelight? What's a firelight? It's a little blinking red light that says your airplane's on fire. Oh. It's pretty simple, a firelight. Yeah, so uh, first, time I, first time I saw one was, I think it was, um, it was October of 1989 um, in, in Arizona. I was flying on departure. And to make a long story short, uh, we, able, we were able to safely recover the airplane because that wasn't the first time I really saw a firelight. It was the first time I saw a firelight in a no-kidding real airplane, but I had seen it for the previous five or six years over and over again in multiple different aircraft simulators. So, you know, when it relates to cyber, you know, less than 20%, according to SANS, less than 20% of real SOC analysts have seen real malware in a real work environment, right? So they get surprised. So the firelight makes them pucker up. So that's what I was about to say. So typically when you get nervous and you get a little tense and you're under pressure, typically our, you know, we all, our IQs typically drop, right? You kind of have a panic mode. When you see it a bunch of times, you just remain kind of cool hand Luke and you realize just work the problem, right? Yeah. So that's what it allows you to do is to see things for the first time before you've seen them in the real world. So when you see them in the real world, you kind of go, that's no big deal. It's just another day at the You've office. got the muscle memory to go and yeah. just execute against it. Good segue for, for this conversation with what 1150 is doing. There is a bit of a focus on um, veterans. I'm a veteran. You're a veteran. You're an Air Force, an officer, and a gentleman. And I was uh, a ground-pounding cannon cocker and drill sergeant whenever I left the Army. So obviously important to us. One of the big problems, and we see a lot of uh, nonprofit organizations working on this, is how to deal with our soldiers, our airmen, our CBs, Marines rotating back to society after serving our country. So they come back, and especially for the combat arms, there's not a lot of combat arms jobs in in the civilian world. Nope. So 
This might be a close parallel where you've had the experience of being in a firefight and you've had the experience of working in a team environment where you have to count on people in an emergency situation. So the cybersecurity analyst, the cybersecurity warrior might make sense as a job transition. I think that's an excellent choice and that ties in with 1150's doing. And uh, there's a certain level of patriotism and esprit de corps that exists in, in being in this career field. You feel like you're protecting the homeland a little bit. Yeah, I'm protecting the homeland. And on, on top of that, you know, some, a little bit of personal information. I am uh, part of a couple of organizations that deal with uh, suicide prevention for uh, soldiers, airmen that rotate back over. So they've, uh, PTSD is a real thing. And one of the big problems that we find is the lack of transition to a job. So having the ability to, to easily transition, it sounds like Teddy at 1150 is a logical place. If, I am, if I'm ETSing from Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and not sure what to do, going through boot camp again without having to get up at 4 a.m. <laughs> and run five miles might be, might be a reasonable option. Definitely stay warmer doing this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So in 12 weeks, I could take that uh, combat experience I have and actually leverage that and put it to use in a, in a fruitful career. Exactly. So our boot camp is not going to make you get up and run in, in the cold and, and all that. Ours is very accommodating, actually. We provide snacks, meals, and everything. So, um, <laughs> Hey, there was always meals provided. Meals ready to eat, SOS. Yeah, no. So one of the reasons that I wanted to come on board with 1150 was because of this, right? So they, they explained that this was... You know, this is an issue and it's something that I've, I've, I've kept up with over the years, but where is it that I can make my difference and, and, and all that? So when 1150 said that this is their main, you know, this is what they want to get to. They have the, the GI Bill is approved for 1150, so um, they can allow that these soldiers that are coming home to, you know, come here, learn how to do a job that is, you know, not the same in nature, right? But like you, like you guys said before, it's the you know, you're training for a firefight, you're, you're training to be attacked and you're protecting, you know, what's yours or your homeland, which is your, your company. Yeah, so so 1150 is, is trying our best to get the word out to those individuals. Um, our our class right now is actually, the lead instructor of the, of the current class now is, his name is David Witt, he is um, ex-Air Force. So he, he was in the armed forces. We have uh, the first class, we had three, uh, veterans, the the current, and the, I'm referring to full-time class. Um, we also have a part-time class as well, but for numbers-wise, uh, this class that we're in now, we have, there's five uh, veterans in that course. So we're trying to, to get that, uh, see that inc increase in, in numbers there because, you know, it is incredibly important to give back to those people that have given so much for our country and for us back here that I think it's so important to show them the support that that we that we want to give them um, and, and do whatever it is we can to to get them on their feet and ready to go back in in the United States, right? I I applaud eleven fifty for having that in their DNA and for what you guys are doing to help transition our uh, fighting men and women back into society and you know as a, probably a very natural way to sign off this being Veterans Day. I want to encourage anybody that's that listens to this. You you may not listen to it on Veterans Day, but if you know a veteran, you have a friend that's a veteran that's looking for a way 
to transition back to civilian life to um, look at that kind of immersive training that a, a group like 1150 can provide and get your get your real hands-on education and and have a very fruitful career so teddy i really appreciate you coming on sharing your background and sharing with the good work you guys are doing at 1150 john jumping in here helping explain what that range and you know getting people ready to fill all those empty seats in the sock so with that and uh happy veterans day and happy veterans day, adios buddy. all right thank you guys